When we last left off, we covered the tale of how Diane Downs was held at gunpoint by a bushy-haired stranger who allegedly shot her and her kids. As the police further investigated her claims, Diane's story slowly fell apart, leading police to question what really happened that awful night in May of 1983. I'm your guest host, Lisa, with me I still have my sister, Marina, and this is a Baby Break episode of Grimm. part two and correct me if i'm wrong dear sister lisa this is three parts uh as much as i literally hated you the last time you did three parts and i'm pretty (laughs) sure i sent you angry text messages about it this is three parts yeah i just want to know if you appreciate now when you were like i hate laura for not giving us three parts all in a row like you understand the research that's required in writing a three-part episode um i it is it is a lot of time yeah it's Mm -hmm. there's a lot and if it's if it's a story like this where it's just wild and you need all the parts of it um it turns out to be three parts you need all the deeds so i know we do have some gremlins who appreciate the um longer multiple part episodes and for the other gremlins um so sorry you don't have a choice but before we get into the story uh i need to do some patreon shout outs and i'm not sure how long it's been but we have a few so buckle up because we have to thank everybody because we love you so so much uh first up we have Alyssa d Alyssa, we love you thank you so much megan r megan we love you thank you you're the best miranda l okay miranda (laughs) thank you miranda we love you louise m all right here we go thanks louise jordan t jordan jordan we love you so much you're the best (laughs) stacy r we love you stacy thank you stacy's mom has got it going on Stacy, does your mom have a got it going on? Was that a sentence? No, but I bet you she's heard that a bajillion times. <laughs> no. <laughs> Next up, we have Lexi E. Woo-hoo! Yeah, Lexi. Thank you, Lexi. We love you so much. Zoe B. Thank Zoe. you, Zoe. We love you. Haley. Oh, is that a C or a G? Uh, Haley C and G. Haley's we love you. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's a C. It looks like a C. Haley C. Thank you, Haley C. Ava T. Woo! We love Ava, you, Ava. The best. And Angela A. Woo-hoo! Okay, Angela. Thank you, Angela. We love you, love you, love you. So, guys, we love you so much. Thank you so much for supporting our Patreon. If you want to join our Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash uh, go. Uh, no, patreon.com slash grim colon a true crime podcast. Is it that? I don't know. I don't know. Go to Patreon and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. That's what it is. Um, and spoiler alert, we went to Mexican tonight and I had two margaritas. So, but I'm just kidding. I actually, it was fine. But now I'm drinking um, a Chardonnay, which I don't like that came out of my wine advent calendar. So basically what I'm saying is buckle up. But anyways, go to Patreon, look us up, um, subscribe. We have 13 P bonies. So like if you have been missing us, um, check those out because they're awesome. And Lisa's looking at me waiting for the go ahead for her to start speaking. So ready, go ahead. 
So my sources for this part two episode are the same. Um, I got pretty much all of my information from the book Small Sacrifices by Anne Roll. Um, I did use Google and internet articles for some clarification. And then this time um, I listened to a few other true crime podcasts on the Downs case and some of the many interviews by Diane, um, including a lot of what is called the hardball interview that um, will come up later. I couldn't honestly listen to too many more of her interviews. It's really hard to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible to listen to. Um, I also need to add a clarification piece here. So many of the names were changed in the movie Small Sacrifices that I had watched um, that were based on the book. It's also titled Small Sacrifices. And I knew and I knew that. So I made sure to use the names from the book, not the movie, because I knew those were wrong in my retelling. However, what I didn't realize is that Anne Rule actually changed a few of the names in the book as well from the actual names. Um, so in part one, I introduced the name Lou and we kind of had a laugh about Lou, good old Lou. Mm-hmm. Um, so in reality, Lou Lewiston is actually changed from Robert Knickerbocker, who Diane called Nick. So Nick, Nick, Nick Knickerbocker good old, good old is Nick actually Knickerbocker. Lou Lewiston. <laughs> Nick but Knickerbocker. For this podcast, I'm going to keep saying Lou just because that's most of the book I've been reading about Lou and it just flows a little bit easier for continuity for continuity. Now as a human being whose last name was Knickerbocker and your first name is Robert, why on earth would you take the nickname Nick so that you are Nick Knickerbocker? (laughs) So I don't know if that was his nickname or Diane called him Nick Knickerbocker. Okay. She did. I don't know if other people did. That's like when I went to school with that kid whose last name was Marino and you were like, you should marry him because you'd be Marina Marino. Yeah, we made that joke a lot. I know. You know yeah. what? It's, wasn't that funny? No, but I do appreciate that Ann Rule decided Nick Knickerbocker should be Lou, Lou Lewiston. <laughs> Gotta keep it. Keep it classy. <laughs> yeah. So we ended at the divorce of Diane and Steve in 1981. I'm sorry. The what? The divorce? <laughs> the divorce. Please. <laughs> point out every time i stumble over a word it's would i really be your sister if i did i'm pretty fair. sure i do it to laura too so point, sorry fair. buckle up um okay so after that diane was never without a lover so she went from man to man pretty quickly um she never really allowed them to hurt her she would kind of use them and get rid of them um steve told diane she had to pay him five thousand dollars to buy out his part of the house and a co-worker at the Chandler post office who had a faltering marriage of his own was taken by Diane because she liked married men. So Mac Richmond loaned Diane the money. Two weeks after Steve moved out, Mac moved in with his two daughters, 9 and 11. It only lasted through the summer of 1981, which is kind of a long time frame for her. Oh, um, boy. He said she was completely different at home. She found children annoying and wouldn't even let them in the living room. He didn't agree with her discipline methods, and she would call her children vulgar names. No. Yeah. So when she started in on his two daughters, he was out. Yeah. Fuck yeah. that. <clears throat> so in September 1981, she finally headed to Kentucky to become a surrogate mother. Oh, Lord. Yep. No, 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 <clears throat> So Isn't there like a screening process for that? Yeah, we went over that in the last episode. She failed the first one and then kind of almost didn't fail 
didn't pass the second oh, one, God, but she sorry. did. Uh, my brain's a colander. Yeah. We know this about me. Yeah, and we add alcohol, and that makes it better. Mm, so mm-hmm. much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the screening process mm-hmm. kind of worked, not really. So she was still accepted. Um, so Steve lived down the street and was taking care of the kids while she went, and the whole insemination procedure took, like, 20 minutes, and she was immediately pregnant. Mm fertile myrtle dude um, dude the ones that should not have babies are the most fertile yep yeah so she had a great time with that pregnancy she felt super important full of life um she went to her appointments as agreed and in may 1982 she flew back to kentucky to give birth to another little girl her two girls were with her parents in oregon and danny stayed with steve the delivery went smoothly and five days later much to everyone's relief she signed all the paperwork got her $10,000 and headed home. Oof. She calls this baby Jennifer. I don't actually know. I don't think she knows if that's the real name, um, but that's just the name that she kind of calls this, this child. Um, three, weeks, three weeks later, she was back on her letter carrier route. Good for her. <laughs> oh, good old letter carriers. <laughs> feeling great and collected her children back because she was feeling lonely. So she used her money to pay back the $5,000 um, and sold Steve back the house. Okay. And then she bought a new, newer trailer, pretty much almost new in a trailer park. Um, someone that she, you know, she could call her and her kids alone. Like it wasn't Steve's. It wasn't any other man's. It was just her home with her kids. It was like an RV or like a double wide? Like a double wide. Okay. Um, and it was big enough that the, it was kind of the size of like a small house. Like it was a okay. pretty nice. Double wides can be super nice. Yeah. It was a pretty nice little house. Um, so the summer of 1982, she started taking night. I don't know what that was. She started taking night college classes um, to kind of get her feet wet back into school, especially like English and math. Um, She also had a great time making her way through the men at the Chandler post office. Okay. Yep. She's busy. She is. So she seduced them pretty easily. She was really bubbly and giggly and flirtatious. Um, And these relationships ended very quickly, though, since once they became intimate, she would actually become the opposite, like a dominatrix. She often drew blood, scratching them. Oh, good Lord. And mind you, all of these men were married. She had a thing Mm. for married men. So she kind of would mark them, and then the men would be like, crap, I got to go home with these, like, scratches. (laughs) That is messed up. Yeah. So she kind of found a thrill in having control over them. She's kind of a psycho. I mean, yeah, I think we've established that. After quite a few men, she set her sights on Lou Lewiston (laughs) in July 1982. So um, back to more present. So Cheryl Lynn's funeral was held that Wednesday. I know that's kind of like a jump back and forth, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell the story without going through like the investigators path of who they interviewed and how they found this stuff out. So it kind of bounces back and forth. Okay. Um, but so Sherilyn's funeral was held that Wednesday. It was super crowded. Family, friends, um, those showing support for the grieving young mother. Remember, she had gone in on thurs- uh, Thursday night, got out of the hospital on Monday. Cheryl's funeral was on Wednesday, and both of the other children are still in the hospital for quite a while. Okay. Um, the day that Diane was released from the hospital on that Monday, Hughie and the other investigators were reading through her diary and they were writing, writing questions on the chalkboards and trying to come up with theories. They had the two chalkboards. Diane did it. Diane didn't do it. Yep. Um, the entries in her diary started April 21st. Each of them was an unsent letter to Lou. There was one for each day leading up to May 19th. 
the day that the children were shot. And it was clear from the diary entries that Lou had dumped her and that she didn't know why. She was in love with him. In her head, he was in love with her and his wife, Charlene, was the problem. Mm. Did Lou shoot the kids? Did Charlene shoot the kids? Did Steve shoot the kids? Could they account for where these people were that night? Those were the questions that the investigators are kind of coming up with as they read this diary. I shot the sheriff. (laughs) So (laughs) the red compact car was finally pulled from the garage in the light of day that week, and they saw something they couldn't see in the dark. Red high-velocity backspatter on the right passenger side door Mm. on the outside of the car. Mm. Say that one more time so I can picture it. Yep, it was... High velocity back spatter on the right passenger side door on the outside. The outside, okay. This is the trajectory blood takes backwards towards the hand of the shooter and the gun. Okay. But for it to be where it was, someone that was shot had to be outside the car near the ground. Okay. So in order for this to have happened, Diane had to have lied. Mm, well, and if I mean, she yeah. had lied out about one thing, there were probably more. Right. But this was the first real lie that they had caught her in. Okay. And I'm, this? You're going to explain how mm-hmm. it all went down, yeah. right? Okay. So Paul Alton and Doug Welch had to Chandler to interview Lou and Charlene Lewiston, as well as anyone else mentioned in Diane's dowry. Dowry? <laughs> <laughs> Diary. Okay. It's been a very long week, so yeah. this is going to be a lot of that, Long I think. week. So this is normally, we record on like Monday nights or Tuesday nights. This is a Friday night, and it's like end of the week, brains are broken. We both have one brain cell hanging on by a fingernail, so just... I live another state away. I can't do this on a Monday night. <laughs> yeah, so just hang with us. Hang with um, us. So they thought they would be there for three or four days, but everyone they interviewed gave them a few more names of people that they needed to talk to. And they were there for a total of nine days interviewing people related to Diane's life before her move. So much paperwork. So much paperwork. And this is like nine in the early 1980s. So every like recorded interview then has to be like transcribed. And yeah, that was was a lot of work. Um, Oh, so I actually had put here the next section I'm going to relay is the events of Diane's life between when she got divorced and when her children were shot. But these events come from piecing together interviews, her diaries, her calendars and her own accounts. Um, So this section kind of jumps a little bit back and forth between what we would call current post shooting and like before shooting. So if you just get confused, um, just ask. So the first person they interviewed, of course, was Lou Lewiston. Mm-hmm. Also, well, Lewis Lewiston, although that's still a made-up name, so it doesn't matter. Let me say it. Nick Knickerbocker. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was a, f- a suspect at first, either on his own or as an accomplice, and the detectives immediately recognized him as the man in the two photos that are in Diane's condo mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, next to her headshots. Um <laughs> <laughs> so good. Lou's wife, Charlene, attended the interview. Charlene! Is that from something? Yeah, the fighter. Oh. They're like super, they're from, I think they're from Fairhaven or they're from Massachusetts and she's like, Charlene! Okay, well, I don't know that reference, so that was just a weird way to, way to say it. <laughs> so basically, you are Laura, who gets none of my movie references. Okay, well, in fact, you didn't get my Dick Tracy reference, no. so... Charlene! <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So Lou's wife, Charlene, attended the interview. 
Um, Lou told the detective she could stay. She knew everything and he wanted her there. Um, Charlene had actually known everything about Lou's affair with Diane and she had forgiven him. Uh, she also had a computer like memory of dates. So she ended up being super important for the detectives. Nobody's ever accused me of that. (laughs) (laughs) No. Lou and Charlene married in Texas in 1979. Um, Charlene convinced Lou to move back to Chandler, Arizona, where her family was. And so they were having marital issues, mostly due to finances after the move in the fall of 1981. And that's when Lou met Diane because they both worked as letter carriers, still a word, (laughs) Um, and they were friends. And then in the summer of 1982, Lou fell on the loading dock and shattered his elbow. Ouch. Yep. So he ended up in like the office instead of out on a route. So he saw her a lot. They were there together often. He found her physically attractive. She was a very attractive young woman, and she would often wear these, like, short-cut T-shirts with no bra, so if she leaned over, you could see, like, the underside of her, like, very voluptuous <laughs> boobs. Um, these, cut, like, skimpy cut-off jeans in the summer. She was, she was a hot ticket. And so Lou told Diane he only wanted a fling because he was not happy with his marriage, and he just kind of wanted a little fling. Um, He had had others before during his first marriage. This was the second marriage for both him and his wife. And so Lou knew that Diane wanted to be a surrogate again as soon as possible. So, and the ambitions to become a doctor. So he figured she didn't really want anything long-term anyway. And she told him she didn't want to have an affair because she was afraid she'd get pregnant. So Lou told her that he could, she could have an affair with him because he had had a vasectomy when he was 21. Wow. Um, He knew he did not want kids. Okay. He just did not want kids. Also, as a side note, you could not pay me enough to carry someone else's child just for money. Like $10,000 would not be enough for me to go through another pregnancy. There are people that love being pregnant. And they I also am have, not one of them. Yeah. Some people have nice pregnancies and they love it. Mm-hmm. I am also not one of them. No. And $10,000 would not be enough money no. for me to do that. Nope. Just, a, just a, a grim so fact. Yeah. <laughs> so either. <laughs> Um, so in the beginning, everything was quick, no more than an hour meetup. They didn't really talk. It was just all about the sex. Um, once they got a motel and Lou, it actually kind of made Lou pretty uncomfortable and he begged Diane for discretion, but she co- constantly talked about him in the office and within no time, everyone at work knew that they were having a little relationship. Oof, Diane is a slut. Oh yeah. That was pretty well known by everybody. Cause by that point she had worked her way through most of the married men in the post office. Lou was like one of the last ones. Oh my God. Um, so Charlene said she knew about the affair early on and she knew that it had started the second week in July because Lou was a lousy liar. He just, she just knew he was lying towards the end of the summer. Diane had set her sights on Lou. She wanted to marry him. She told him she knew he didn't want kids. She would just have to find a way for them not to bother him. He reminded her that he didn't want to leave his wife, and he had realized far too late that the attachment and obsession that was Diane Downs wasn't going to just go away. Oh, yeah. He figured out way too late that she was cuckoo Mm. bananas. So in August, Steve asked Diane for a reconciliation attempt. He wanted to get back together with her. Oh, man. Yeah, Mm because it's one. Was there a case that we covered, and it's like, does she have a golden vagina like what is it? like what is it i don't know but these men like fall for her but steve she steve and her were like wrapped i don't know they hated each other then they loved each other i don't know hmm. it was like a yo-yo mm-hmm. um lou told her to go for it and mm-hmm. he said go go see what steve so steve moved into her trailer but moved back out within the week <laughs> Oh, okay. So yeah, that reconciliation lasted (laughs) a long time. Um, In September 1982, Diane gave the three kids back to Steve. 
um, the two girls wanted to go to a school district that Steve lived in, okay. but she didn't. And um, so Diane was allowed to see them whenever she wanted to, but she took on a full college schedule and would like babysit them occasionally. Okay. Was yep. she pregnant again with another baby? She was no. just like, can you take my kids? I'm just going to go make no. some more and study things. Um, she had a really crazy busy schedule, which only lasted a few weeks into the semester. She just couldn't, couldn't hack it. She realized that if she wanted to be a doctor, her life would only be working classes for years. And she had mm-hmm. no time for Lou. Oh, okay. yeah. So mid-September, Diane was scheduled to fly back out to Kentucky for her next insemination. So now we've, we've, we've done the college for a couple weeks and now we're going to go back to being a surrogate mother. I don't know why when I, whenever I hear the word insemination, I think two things, one, a horse and two, a turkey baster. We watched way too much Days of Our Lives when we were in middle school I mean, and they high may school. use a type of turkey baster. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Not an actual turkey baster. Yeah, in Days of Our Lives, they used an actual turkey they, baster. They did. And I believe it was on like an evil twin or like, I don't know. <laughs> Those soap operas, man. These are the Days of Our Lives. Those were the best when you were homesick, though. <laughs> okay, but it wasn't even sick. I remember like one summer, you and I were completely hooked on them. And mom was like, you guys need to go outside <laughs> and see the sunshine. And we were like... <gasps> But Phoebe is being molested by, <laughs> by Jeffrey's twin brother. Yeah. Anyways, we digress. Okay. <laughs> um, so right before she flew out to Kentucky, she apparently had noticed some sort of discharge and blamed Lou for giving her an STD. Mm, okay. Yep. And so Lou knew it couldn't have come from him because he literally had only been with her and Charlene. And she, on the other hand, had been with four men that summer. At least four men that summer. Oh. So Lou finally had to tell Charlene for, like, her own protection. Because if Diane had an STD, he would have an STD. And then yeah. Charlene would have an STD. So he told her on his birthday, September 12th. And the two had to go to a clinic and get treated for an STD. Oh. Yeah. Um, so... Lou broke up with Diane right before she left for Kentucky, but she didn't believe him that it was real. Um, And Diane expected Charlene to leave Lou once she was told, but Charlene was not letting him go that easy. You know what? And for what it's worth, you know, if Diane wants to just go like bang everything with two legs to each their own, but she's drawn to the married Married ones. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm like, you're a homewrecking slut Mm -hmm. lady. Oh yeah, she is. Do Mm -hmm. not, do not appreciate and for the first time, Diane did not conceive. Oh, wow. From her insemination. Yep. She didn't know that as she flew back home. And when she got home, she looked around at the airport and expected to see Lou, who was not there. Instead, Steve was there. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so she was not happy. She just didn't feel that bubbly excitement like, I'm pregnant. Lou wasn't there waiting for her. It was Steve. And the last time she had seen Steve was a couple weeks prior, and she actually had come to work the next day with a black eye and a bunch of bruises. Like, the two of them got into, like, a physical altercation. So she was not excited to see Steve. Mm. Steve takes Diane back to his house, and she was acting very weird. Like, Steve just said it was just very – it was a very weird mood that she was in. Um, And she started scratching at her face like she used to do, making those big red scratches Mm. in her face. And so Steve was pretty worried. Before they left Steve's house, he did notice Diane pocket something that was black. Um, And then on the way back to the trailer park, Diane was in the car mumbling about suicide and ending it. When they get to the trailer, she runs into the bathroom and locks herself in. And so Steve's pounding on the door and she tells him she's going to kill herself. 
And so he realizes she's got a gun, his one of his guns. Oh. So he hears a gunshot. Yeah. And he crashes through the door and finds her sitting on the tub, uninjured, pointing the gun at him. Oh, my God. Yep. She said, I can't kill myself, Steve, but I can kill you. That is so cuckoo bananas. So Steve talks her down. And when she has a moment of hesitation, he just grabs the gun. Diane had actually shot a hole into the floor, like through the trailer. She was deeply depressed. Um, She had left her dreams of being a doctor for Lou and Mm -hmm. Lou had broken up with her. Yeah. She'd left other men for Lou and Lou didn't want her. Yeah. Steve took the gun. Lou had Charlene. He did. (laughs) Lucky for him. You know, what's really funny is I was thinking the name Nora in the book didn't sound like it fit. Charlene sounds like a woman who's like, you ain't taking my husband. Yeah. (laughs) I don't care what you did. You're not taking him. He's mine. (laughs) Nora's like, well, I mean, I love him, but I guess we'll share. No, Charlene sounds like she's ready to play. (laughs) You need to watch the movie The Fighter because Charlene is a bad bitch in the movie. Um, So Steve had taken the gun back home because he's like, I'm not leaving it with Diane. Right. And so Diane focused on getting Lou back again. She went to a tattoo parlor and got a big red scarlet rose (laughs) on her shoulder with Lou written in his own handwriting. He... (laughs) He refused to give it to her, but she got it somehow anyway. She asked him, and he was like, no. Um, She told him that it was his mark saying that she was his. And if another man tried to touch her, they would see the mark and know she belonged to him. Oh, Lord. Mm -hmm. It made Lou super uncomfortable. (laughs) He's like, anyways, could you not do that? That'd be great. Thank you. And he was with Diane day in and day out at work, and the affair began again. Oh, Lou. Oh, uh, yeah. This, Nick, this Nicker, is Nick Knickerbocker. <laughs> Lou Lewiston. Get your shit together. <laughs> he was in way over his head. He was with her night and day, and it just went on and on. Charlene obviously knew that it had started again, but she said nothing. She just bided her time. Poor Charlene. <laughs> um, and Lou could never stay away from Diane Long. It was, it was like, Steve, just a, a yo-yo. Like, they'd leave, they'd come back. they leave, they'd come back. And the investigators knew this because... They had taken calendars from Diane's condo, and the calendars had all sorts of marks on them. Relationships, when she was intimate, breakups, get-togethers. And so they knew they could literally trace her whole relationship with Lou from these calendars between 1982 and 1983. Who fucking tracks that shit? It was, it, it looked like, they said it looked like a patchwork quilt with all <laughs> these, like, lines and marks, and every line meant, like, a get together or a she's sexual... like if i bang lou it's an x mark if i bang steve it's a circle if i bang joseph it's a line yeah so they could literally track all of it crazy from these from these calendars that they have super from her. crazy is that so that she could like figure out whose baby it was they got her oh, pregnant oh i don't know no i i don't think she was ever that in not in control of her own life like she knew exactly when she was getting pregnant because she wanted to be pregnant at that moment. You know what I mean? Like, every time she threw out the birth control and was like, hey, I'm pregnant. <laughs> like, so crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> so she was due back in Kentucky in October 9th to tr- on October 9th to try f- uh, for a second time to get inseminated. And this time they actually gave her Clomid, which makes you just produce more eggs at once. Um, Christy turned eight and then she flew out. And while she was gone, her trailer caught fire. Mm. Yep. So they determined it was an electrical shortage in the wall, even though the trailer was brand new. She had only made three four hundred dollar payments on it. 
Okay. Or it was the wife of one of the dudes she banged burning her trailer to the ground. I'll get to it later, but it was actually Steve. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And her. Spoiler alert. Oh, okay. All right. For the insurance. (laughs) Oh, man. Did they get caught? Because the insurance fraud will get you every time. Damn it. Um, So she got $7,000 in insurance. Lou claims that he asked Diane about the fire, and she confessed to him that she had Steve start it. But he had failed and left the bedroom door closed, so only the bedroom burned. Fucking Steve. <laughs> I know. So she paid off her Ford Fiesta. She had like a, a white Ford Fiesta. She gave Steve $100, and she bought some materials to like repair the trailer. And she moved in with Karen Batten for a bit. That was her friend from the post office. Okay. Steve and his friends said they could fix the trailer for her, but they never did. She just fit. She failed to get pregnant for a second time oh, in no. that month. Yep. She must have been so sad. Yeah. I mean, for being fertile, it was pretty amazing that she wasn't pregnant from these inseminations. Yeah. Although she was only intimate with Lou, she actually moved back in with Steve and her children in November. Um, Steve remembers one night he was sitting on the tailgate of his truck with the kids, and Diane came speeding down the road in her white car, pointing the gun at Steve, said, this is what I've got. Oh, my gosh. So he dove for the car because the kids are there, too, and he doesn't know what she's doing with this gun. But she backed the car up, so he's sort of, like, riding the door frame, holding onto the car as she barrels away, and he's, <laughs> and she's speeding up faster and faster, and then this, these other cars come down the road. So he lets go and, like, rolls down this hill. The kids were screaming. She's laughing hysterically and (laughs) drives off. So he calls the cops, but then he tells them to go away because he didn't want her to get in trouble. He felt bad. Wow. I don't, I don't know what, what pheromone she holds, but wow. Yeah. Um, and so the kids went to, went to bed in their clothes, terrified that she was going to come back with the gun and no one remembered to feed them dinner. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that happened a lot. They just forgot they had kids. That is, but then again, wasn't it like the, wasn't it like this, the eighties where they had like the 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? (laughs) Where they constantly had to remind parents Uh they had kids. (laughs) I think that is around that. I time think it frame. is yeah. around the eighties. Yeah. Oh my Late god, 70s, I feel maybe. so bad. Yeah, that's yeah. sad. So, um, investigation and questioning led to alibis for both Steve and Lou and Charlene. So, all three of them, the night of the shooting, they were all safely in Arizona. They were not in Oregon. Um, the number. A number of people were asked to take a lie detector test, and they all agreed, and they all passed. So I have a list of quotes that were collected by the investigators, although I'm not exactly sure which which one goes to who, because they, they like, questioned every single person that she knew. Okay. Um, they were people in the post office, people in town, like, friends. So Diane is headstrong. She knows what she wants and will do what she has to to get it. Diane didn't care for her kids. Diane's not a good mother. The children were a hindrance to her. Diane was moody. One day she would be in a good mood, and the next day she seemed to be mad. Mm. Diane was looking for love. In all the wrong places. (laughs) Probably. Which was the theme from, like, literally when she was a teenager. Yep. Even a child. Diane was going to shoot Steve once, but she said she chickened out. Mm. One time, Danny threw up on the rug. Diane screamed at him and called him a fucking bastard. The kids were hungry. There was never any food in Diane's house. 
Diane took on married men because they were more willing. It was a sexual need that made Diane really come on to men. Diane wouldn't hurt her kids. She was a very poor mother. Everything came ahead of the children. When she picked the kids up and Danny wanted affection, she would push him away. She would come to visit and leave the kids home alone for 30 minutes to two hours. She said they'd be all right. My heart is so sad for those kids. Diane was just a sad lady. Yeah. Yeah. Diane's gone through a lot of people and has no scruples or conscience. She doesn't care who she hurts. That lady is pure poison. That lady is whacked out. So they did find a few people that were like, she loved those kids. She would never hurt those kids. But Mm. uh, the rest of them were all pretty like stories of her yelling at the kids, swearing at them. If they did anything wrong, they would, you know, they were a hindrance to her. Right. She just kind of left them. So sad. Yeah. There were a lot of stories I didn't include in here from like the neighborhood parents that kind of took the kids in when she wasn't around. And yeah. Um, So Diane had moved back into her trailer with her sister, Kathy, and her nephew, Israel, because Kathy had left her husband as well. Her kids were there with her sometimes, but because the trailer was like partly blackened and seared and had soot and stuff, like the kids were freaked out. They they didn't really like it. It was kind of scary. So one time she went to Lou's house and Lou asked her where the kids were. She literally crawled into bed with him and she was like, oh, they're at home. Where was Charlene? Was Charlene on the other side of Lou? <laughs> no, they weren't that open about it. Um, I don't know where she was. Maybe work or something. Um, but so she was like, oh, yeah, they're at home. And he was appalled. that, And he told her that eight was too young for a child to be at home alone, let alone watch two other children. And so he made her go home and wait until Kathy got back or he she couldn't come back to see him. Lou, just say no. <laughs> no means no, Lou. He, he tried on. a few times. So just before Thanksgiving, Lou had a deep look inside and told Diane he was going to leave his wife. Mm -hmm. Betcha that wasn't the way you thought it was going to (laughs) go. No. Mm -mm. So Diane found an apartment and convinced him to sign the lease with her. He moved in. Oh, he never moved in. Sorry. And and only visited. Um, Diane would give him little messages from the kids and he thought that was super weird. And he had only met them a handful of times, and he thought they were, like, cute kids, but he wasn't into kids. Lou, And he Charlene? certainly didn't want to be a daddy. Where's Charlene? At home. Oh, Charlene. <laughs> um, Diane told him, I don't want a daddy. I want someone to love me and, like, my kids, but not be a part of them. That okay. was a quote. Yeah, she doesn't want to share the attention. No. Yeah. He never moved in, and eventually Diane gave up the apartment. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Through November and December, they continued to see each other constantly, and Lou asked his wife for a divorce, <clears throat> but she said no. <laughs> can you do that? You can. You can't get divorced unless both parties sign. Well, yeah, but like... Well, oh, but so <clears throat> he so he spent... Okay, so it did say he didn't have the money for a divorce, so she can't... If she says no... It's not just paperwork filed. You then have to get a lawyer and he didn't have the money to okay. battle out getting oh, a divorce. Yeah. I was like, I'm pretty sure like you can, it, it'd be like a contested divorce, but I'm pretty sure like someone can't just be like, oh, fuck you. We're going to stay married forever. <laughs> no, he did. Sorry to stipulate. He didn't have the money to get a divorce unless she said yes. Gotcha. Because then it's just like sign okay. the papers and file it for 150 bucks and move on. Like okay. something like that. I don't do, I don't <clears throat> do uh, family law. I covered a family law hearing once. It was a consensual 
mutual divorce. Like they were both in agreement and I covered it and they signed the divorce papers and it was like somebody had murdered both of their puppies. They were both so sad. The air was like thick with like just sadness. And I was like, this is the worst. Like honestly. Family law cannot be fun no matter how you spin it. It's not. No. No, it was, it was very depressing. Um, so, so he asks his wife for a divorce. She says no. So he spends a night in a motel with a very triumphant Diane and, but then he goes back home. Oh my God. <laughs> Lou, what are you doing? Lou? He moved out of Charlene's bed, but kept seeing Diane. So he just like lived in her house. He eventually did get an apartment of his own, but he would go back multiple times a week to help Charlene. He still mowed the lawn, took out the trash, like chores. What a gentleman. He obviously <laughs> still cared for her, yeah. but was wrapped around Diane's finger. Um, she would seduce him, promise him all kinds of things, things that he never even asked for. She had put all of her energy into ripping him away from his wife. And she was very persuasive when she wasn't putting all her energy into something. So (laughs) damn. Um, but so even stranger, Diane would send letters to Charlene. No, no, Diane (laughs) would call her. No. Yeah. She would call her. And then, um, the children were with Steve during Christmas, so she sent them a ton of presents, and she even sent Charlene a Christmas gift. But what would she say? Like, ha ha, I have your husband. So some of the calls were like, you know, you're such a strong woman, and then other ones were like, he's mine, bitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> was she bipolar? Was she diagnosed bipolar? You asked me that last episode, and she was not diagnosed bipolar, <laughs> but like... <laughs> Wow. There's well, at, a, least, at least I had the same thought twice. There's a strong chance that she could be. <laughs> but she also saw so many psychiatrists that I feel like someone would have diagnosed her at some point oh if they God. thought she was. Um, can you imagine, like, this woman sleeping with your husband and then you get a Christmas present from her? <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I accept all gifts. So, like, if you're going to take my man's, at least buy me it presents in return. Wait, let me think. It was a... Tur- turtle-shaped wind chime <laughs> or a frog-shaped wind chime? One of those. <laughs> Are you going to say like a turtleneck? No. She's like, here's an itchy sweater, bitch. <laughs> no, I'm she's gonna like, go sleep with your here's man. This, here's this pretty wind chime for your house that your husband won't stay at because he's with me. How like, bizarre. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know. So in January, Steve sold his house. Um, they asked the kids who they wanted to live with and they said Diane. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have expected that. Well, Christy and Cheryl were afraid to hurt their mother's feelings. Um, if they didn't choose her, I, I would see that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, and so Diane shifted gears again and she told Lou she would build this house that she had designed and the children would have a nanny. And in her designed house, the master suite was across a walkway bridge over a large living room with high ceilings. And so she told him she would get a loan and he said the bank would laugh at her. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So she was designing this house where like they could live together, but the children were there, but not really there. Across a bridge. Across a bridge, across <laughs> the other side of the house. Yes. Okay. Yep. So in... Is there a moat involved? Are there, are there <laughs> no. alligators in no. the moat? So he said the bank would laugh. So instead, she opened her own surrogacy clinic. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yep. She had been opening, keeping her ears open in Kentucky, kind of learning all she could about Was the process. Was it called like Crazy Zara's Turkey <laughs> no. Basters and more? Nope. She connected with a physician and attorney. She rented office space. She took the Kentucky contract and just changed it to her own needs. And her business was called Arizona Surrogate Parenting. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So she told the media that she had five surrogate mothers lined up. In reality, she had two. Diane and Kathy Fredericks. Oh, my God. (laughs) I cannot. I just cannot. Um, She went on a model of financial affordability. So she said that the natural father of her surrogacy had spent $40,000, and she had gotten ten. Her company would only cost twenty to twenty-two thousand. Her surrogate mothers would still get ten thousand, and the company would take twenty-five percent of the remaining fee, and the rest would be medical, psychological testing, hospital costs during delivery. But Diane had no idea how to run a business. Uh, there were some questions about the legality of it in Arizona. In Arizona, mm-hmm. there was a law you can't pay for the handing over of a child or something like that. Mm. But they weren't paying for that. They were paying for the mother's, the surrogate's time and, like, distress or something. I don't know. Loophole. Yeah. There was also, because she was the director and a surrogate, there was questions about confidentiality. Like, how could she not know who the parents are if she runs the clinic and is a (laughs) surrogate? Um, She was still under contract in Kentucky and was supposed to fly out in February for a third attempt. When the newspaper article came out about her business, Charlene calls the clinic in Kentucky and fills them in on Diane's business or plans. I thought and you were going to say Charlene signed up to be a surrogate <laughs> no. at Diane's. And her bout with venereal disease. The clinic in t- Kentucky was appalled and they canceled her contract. And her business never got off the ground. <laughs> God. Are you shocked? Good old, You're shocked, right? Good old VD. There was a comedian that did a skit once about like, he's like, how did people even get those STDs? Are they just out like squatting down in like swamp water? <laughs> you just bang all the men. <laughs> oh my God. Somebody's bound to have it. I mean. Um, so in February, Lou got drunk and told Diane that he would live in a house with her and her kids and that he would have to marry her ass. To Diane, she was over the moon and felt like she had finally won him. Like She was winning him. <laughs> But during, True the, love. but during the last half of February, Diane pushed too hard. She started stifling Lou. She was always at his apartment. And then one night, she literally pushed him up against the wall and demanded he tell her who he loved more, her or Charlene. Mm. And he was like, I love Charlene. Ooh, She's my wrong, wrong answer, So she Lou. lost it. Full-blown tantrum. And he had never seen an adult act that way. And he said the final straw was when she broke his hairbrush. <laughs> He's like, not my favorite mahogany (laughs) seven bristle hairbrush. So Lou left and Diane literally like followed him with her car and was like almost like running him over. (laughs) And so he walks to a 7-Eleven and calls Charlene who came to pick him up. That woman, man. (laughs) Uh, All the, all the people involved. I just, everybody involved. So he went home with Charlene and Diane follows them and is pounding on the door all night, but they didn't answer. And the next morning when she came back, Charlene finally opened the door and was like, fuck off and slammed the door in her face. (laughs) So Lou and Charlene decided they were going to take a two week vacation in Texas and they just leave because they need to get away from this Mm -hmm. whole thing. So they're at one of Lou's friend's houses in Texas. And remember, this is 1983. There are no cell phones. And Diane calls Lou there. At his friend's house in in Texas. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't figure out how she got that phone number. And so he realizes she must have gone through his wallet while he was sleeping one night and like taken the phone numbers that were in there. Oh man, back, um, in, the, back in the day when you had like a little book full of numbers in your wallet. Yep. And since he went to Texas without telling her, Diane figured he had left her for good this time. And so she immediately requested a transfer to the Eugene post office where her parents live in Oregon. Her father being the postmaster, she was guaranteed a job. 
and her parents would be happy to have her and the kids around. And her transfer was put in for the beginning of April. So this is 1983. So remember, May 19th is when this happens. So this is now going to be the beginning of April 1983. Okay. So we're, we're closing right. that gap. Um, she called Lou in Texas to tell him he didn't need to transfer, that she was going to go to Oregon. And Lou assumed she was thinking that he would like feel pressure and follow her or be like, <laughs> he's like, bye. <laughs> when Lou got back from Texas, he stayed with Charlene for a while. Um, but then he went back to his apartment. He saw Diane at work and just like always the affair began again. <laughs> what the fuck? Lou? Oh my God. And now, I mean, you can kind of see why Diane never believed him when he said they were done because they were never done. She's got some sort some sort of unicorn between those legs. My <laughs> yeah, goodness. Seriously. Um, so he, since it was already March, Diane only had two and a half weeks before she left for Oregon. She tried to have the postmaster in, in um, Chandler cancel the transfer and he was like, fuck no, bye. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, ooh, about that. Ooh, get out. <laughs> And he cited, like, she obviously had all the affairs with the men, the skimpy outfits she would wear, especially in the summer. He was like, mm, okay, bye. Yeah, he was like... <laughs> and I she, she threw, like, tantrums at work, like, just blown out tantrums, like a giant adult. So, giant child. <laughs> Not adult tantrums. <laughs> a tiny adult or a giant <laughs> child? Either one. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> one of those, She's yeah. a toddler. <laughs> She's a toddler. Um... So he asked her to move into his apartment with him until she left because he knew she only had two and a half weeks, like, and then she was leaving. Lou. And so during that time, promises were made, dreams were spoken of, and Lou used to wear this big gold chain around his neck. And so one night he takes it off and he puts it around her neck and told her it meant that she was Lou's woman. I'm judging Lou real hard. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm judging him. Damn Nick Knickerbocker. <laughs> Nick Knickerbocker. Get your shit together. <laughs> Um, so she convinced Lou to get a rose tattoo on his arm. <laughs> oh my God. I just took a sip of water and I almost spit I was, it out. I was waiting with bated breath to see if she was going to spew that. It was so close to spitting out. And I was just thinking how much Laura is going to like this episode. Cause she loves alliteration. So Diane Downs, <laughs> Nick Knickerbocker, Lou Lewiston. Like it's good. It's good stuff. Um, so she convinces Lou to get this tattoo. She makes the appointment for him. She makes him go, but he balked. He would not put her name on it. <laughs> So he has this scarlet red rose on his forearm um, that matches hers. And so when her parents came down to help Diane and Kathy pack up their stuff, um, her parents met Lou. And her dad, the Eugene Postmaster, offered him a couple jobs if he wanted to follow her to Oregon. A couple jobs? Like one wasn't enough? <laughs> no, there were three jobs he could choose from. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> he offered him a couple out of three jobs that okay, he could choose right. one. Multiple types of jobs. Yes. Okay. So Lou didn't know what to do. His life with Diane was fine until she started nagging and until he went back to the house to help Charlene with chores. And then, you know. Was, yeah, at this time, was he still, he wasn't <laughs> yes. divorced from Charlene, right? Right? No, he never yeah, divorced right? Charlene. They're okay. still together, like, to this day. Um <laughs> Okay. But he would still go back and like help her with the chores. Like he still cared about her. Yeah. And so, um, so he had doubts. He just kept saying, if it's meant to be, it will be. And so the children go to Oregon with her, with Diane's parents and she followed on April 2nd and she assumed Lou would follow soon after. But as soon as Diane left, the spell over Lou broke. He decided <laughs> he wanted to salvage his marriage, but he couldn't go home to Charlene just yet because he didn't want her to see the tattoo. <laughs> 
At least it didn't have Diane's name on it. No. So Diane called Lou every day, writing him letters, sending him packages. He finally just started sending them back to send her. Um, he told her over the phone one day that they were done. And Diane didn't believe him, which, I mean, I don't blame her. I, I, yeah, no, I don't at this blame point, her at this I don't point blame either. Her. Um, she had left him $500 to help with bills and such and had told him that if he paid that back, she would know it was over. So that day he wrote her a check, April 21st, and sent it back to her. And she cashed it and continued to call. <laughs> but he told his coworkers to tell her he wasn't there. He never asked what they talked about. He didn't want her to even interpret that as him caring. Like. Mm-hmm. So she returned to Eugene once after that. So she went back a week after Lou had told her it was over. She surprised him on his route, like at work, to return his gold chain to him. And he only said about 20 words to her while she was there. Um, He told her he wasn't going to Oregon. He didn't want to be a daddy. Like, we're not doing this. Okay. So now there's something significant in the interview with Lou. The investigators had asked him about Diane's guns, and he described the twenty-two rifle he had seen on the shelf at her apartment. He also described a twenty-two practice pistol, a Di- as Diane called it, um, that she said was Steve's gun, and a thirty-eight pistol. He said he saw both of those pistols in the back of her car the night before she left for Oregon. Okay. And remember, they were lovers right up to the morning she left. So I don't want to remember that. Yeah. So they were lovers right up until the morning that she left. So he, she would have no reason to hide them from him. Right. Um, and he saw them in her trunk the, or in her car the night before she left for Oregon. Okay. Steve described exactly where the two guns were laying on the floor of the car behind the front seat. Diane had told detectives when she was confronted with the third gun that she had offered it first to Lou because Steve was threatening him. And when he didn't want it, she put it in Steve's truck behind the front seat two weeks before she left for Oregon. Lou also expressed his concerns and guilt that he thought Diane might have shot the kids for him since he didn't want kids. That was, Mm. that was Lou's theory. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a good theory. Mm -hmm. Yep. And he told the investigators he was also afraid for his and Charlene's safety. Yeah. Probably smart, too. I would be, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He told them that if she got let off of this and was able to, like, return to Arizona, that something might just happen to Charlene. And then if Lou didn't want her still, maybe something would happen to Lou. Like, they were were concerned. (laughs) For good good reason. Uh She she cuckoo bananas. Yeah, for sure. With guns. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So all of Diane's diary entries, which were read over and over by the investigators, some of them thought they could like recite them by, by memory, um, as well as the interviews of people related to her in Oregon, pieced together a woman who didn't understand reality. She mm-hmm. continued to write and talk about Lou after he broke up with her, after he told her he wasn't coming to Oregon, as if one day he would. Mm-hmm. She even had an affair with a married man at the Eugene post office one week after she got to Oregon. <laughs> oh, my God. His name was Cord Samuelson, and Diane went on and on about her love for Lou during that affair. <laughs> she, she told Cord all about Lou and how she loved him. When her and Heather Plored, the horse lady, <laughs> yep. trained at the post office, she, um, Diane would constantly talk about her boyfriend in Oregon and how he was coming soon. The guy's Um, like, so anyways, so this couldn't be more uncomfortable. Are we going to bang or what? She's like, well, I love Lou, but let's do it. So Cord said that Diane ended up falling into a deep depression as the weeks went on and he didn't come. But then she would just bounce back. So maybe she really was like periodically. Not like, I think bipolar, you can get like mood swings like on the daily basis. She's almost like chunks of time. Like 
super happy, super depressed, super happy, super depressed. Mm, like she definitely know. has psychiatric issues. Um, Hugi noticed that her diary was written as a, on a roller coaster of emotions. Look at that. Mm-hmm. One day she would appear suicidal, the next full of hope and happiness. And so the diary entry that she had written as soon as she returned from her quick 24 hour surprise to Lou and gave his chain back showed just how delusional she was. So here's what she wrote. Friday, 429.83. I'm home. Boy, what an exhausting trip. Oh, Lou, I'm so glad I went. I learned so much. I'm happy again and so content. You love me, Lou. And that's all I needed to know. I know you love me. I'm a little sad that she, Charlene, has convinced you that the kids would be a burden because I know it would not be true. They are terribly independent and require very little care. Yeah, your eight-year-old probably needs a little bit more love yeah. than you're giving. But I'm thinking the three-year-old needs more love than... Oh, oh that's so, right. The eight was the oldest. Yeah, so okay. she's speaking of an eight, a seven, and a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. I literally wrote that right after that. <laughs> oh, God. So that just shows you, like, Lou barely talked to her, and then she comes back and she's like, you love me, Lou. <laughs> like, I have an almost three-year-old, and I can assure you... <laughs> He is the very far from independent. <laughs> yep. He's like, no, no, no. I insist on doing this, but when I do it, I'm going to make it so much fucking worse than if you I just do, helped do. me do it. <laughs> yeah. Like the toothpaste on the toothbrush. Bad times. Yeah. Bad times every morning. Um, so her, her diary very rarely even mentioned her children. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hughie noticed as the diary entries went on, she became angrier, like a, some sort of decision had been made, made. And starting on May 11th, so eight days before the kids were shot, her diary entries were all about her children for the first time. Oh, she wrote still in the form of a letter to Lou, but it was, <laughs> <laughs> but it was about how amazing her children were, how much they loved her, how much they loved him, <laughs> um, and were always there for her, and how she loved them even more than him. So she thinks she's smart, and that she's gonna like convince the police that she's this loving mother she also mentioned finding the brass unicorn in a store window Mm -hmm. and she picked it up may 12th and had it engraved saying she needed it by may 13th Mm -hmm. there was no reason for that date it was just a day it wasn't a birthday or an anniversary but she pushed she needed it for may 13th Mm -hmm. and on that friday may 13th diane took her kids to the beach and they were there all day they were hungry and tired but she took them to the park Oh my god. <laughs> they were it was getting late so she took them to the river. <laughs> oh my god. And Diane. then she picked up her nephew and took them all to the river and then finally took the exhausted whining children home. Hughie's theory is that the 13th was supposed to be the day that they the children were killed. So the the unicorn would have been like a memorial to her dead three children. Okay. It's, of course, just a theory, but right. I can see why he came to that conclusion. And he also noticed that Diane was very keen to have the detectives know about her diary. So, bingo. Yeah. His theory was that she was trying to set up that she loved her children more right. more than, you know, like an alibi. I love my mm-hmm. children more than Lou, you know. She's like, did you see the last two weeks of my diary, though? I could have <laughs> never shot them. <laughs> Yeah, he thought she was trying to cover her tracks. Yeah. And her diary, the week leading up to the 19th, was pretty normal. She wrote about doing laundry, and every night she took the kids to the river. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and remember, she, they got shot on a road near the river. Oh, fuck. Yeah. You, but, like, what are you doing with uh three? She said they loved it. Well, I mean... Did they? I, she said they loved the, like, light bouncing off the river, and the, I don't know. Mm. 
In one entry, she damned Lou. Then the next, she professed her love for him and how much she missed him. Well, that's pretty much their entire relationship, Mm -hmm. so... Um, so through interviews, Hughie found out that she called her friend Barb in Arizona and talked to her for about an hour on the phone. And this was on the 19th, the night, the day that the kids got shot. Okay. While on the phone with Barb, she cried a little and she told her how horny she was and how much she missed Lou and his lovemaking. And based on the timeline, it had to be right before she got in the car with the kids and took them to Heather's house. With the, with the horse coupon. <laughs> oh my God. The horse coupon that our gremlin made was so good. So good. I'm going to have to post it to our Insta because it was really good. Yeah. Um, that last day, the page was dated May 19th, 1983, but there was no actual entry. The page was blank. Okay. Yep. So again, the main evidence comes back to the gun and the investigators tried to track down and work every angle of the gun and the casings that had been fired from the gun they assumed the Ruger was the gun that had shot the children. Mm-hmm. Um, so they searched and searched for any casings that might have been fired by the Ruger. There was um, a friend of Steve's that Steve had kind of lived with after they'd been divorced. His name was Greg Roach, and Greg was a gun fanatic, so he knew everything about guns. So he actually had, had claimed to have fired that Ruger hundreds of times all over Arizona at different shooting ranges, also in a rock quarry, in a forest, in the desert and a porcupine they literally searched in a porcupine is yeah, that what you just a said a dead porcupine <laughs> yeah i don't know okay. they literally searched everywhere that he said he shot that gun they took a helicopter over the desert to try and find this dead porcupine they were like went to the to the rock quarries they went to l- shooting ranges around arizona and collected casings that they still had around just to see if they could match any to the tool marks of the oh ones gosh. from the from the um scene but after they did all of that, the um, there was a truck that he used to drive that he knew there would be casings spent and low like and live in that truck. Greg Greg Roach used to mm-hmm. drive. Okay, and he and he had had the Ruger in there, and he knows there were casings in there. Okay, and that truck had been sold. So they try to track down this truck, and that's a dead end. They can't they can't find it. So they did get a break breakthrough though. So remember I told you when we were in Diane's condo so long ago (laughs) and the rifle had mismatched rounds in it. Okay. Live rounds, right? So they, they take those live rounds and they look at it and the markings on the cases found at the scene of the shooting. And what they notice is that the, the markings on both are the same as in they've been put in the same gun. Okay. So the ones from the rifle are live, mm-hmm. but they have the same um, tool marks on them that the ones at the scene do. Okay. Which means they had to have been loaded into and taken out of the same gun that shot the kids. Okay. Um, however, so this is a huge piece of evidence. Yep. It's proof that those bullets were in the gun that killed the kids, mm-hmm. even though they don't have that gun. Right. However, Huey was worried because this evidence would be hard to show and explain to a jury. Right. Um, because the, those casings had marks all over them. Mm-hmm. These experts can mar- match the tool marks, but it's hard to see in a, in a 2D photo. It's a 3D thing. But that's what experts <clears throat> are for. Right. Um, it's still 1983, too. So there's right. no like digital, yeah. like, you know, mastery and They're all that like, sort of listen, stuff. Listen, just trust me. So Alton and Welsh went back to work. So they went to Diane's old trailer with Steve and had him point out the bullet hole in the bathroom floor Mm. that they know she shot with the Ruger. Okay. 
um, the past September and they went to work. They crawled under that trailer with all the Arizona bugs and, and critters and stuff. Ugh. And it was super hot. They spent two days like sifting through all this sand and debris. And then they finally put a coat hanger through the hole in the bathroom floor <laughs> into the dirt and kind of searched around and they found a 22 slug. Nice. That Diane had fired from the Ruger. And they brought it back for analysis. Unfortunately, it had been through layers of floor and into hard dirt and had been out there for months. Um, the lab could not definitively say that it had been fired as the same slugs from the children's bodies, but they also couldn't not say it had, hadn't been okay. fired from the same gun. So they couldn't exclude it. They couldn't exclude it. There were enough markings that were the same mm -hmm. that they probably could have. Some experts were like, yeah, I could say it's the same gun. But then some were like, mm, mm -hmm. I don't know that you could. Okay. <clears throat> so again, Hughie had to bide his time. They eventually tracked down Steve's truck, um, Steve's friend's truck. Greg. Greg Greg's okay. truck, yep. Um, it had been sold numerous times, but they were desperate. They were like, we have to find a, a slug or a casing from that gun. We have to. Right. And it was in Mexico. Okay. So they literally go down to Mexico and they search the truck and they find bullets and casings that were from the Ruger. And they smuggle them out of Mexico in one of the investigators' boxers. Oh, my God. <laughs> thinking they won't body search them if they oh get to, to the border. Um, so they had this evidence. But again, it would come down to a jury understanding the bullet markings. The markings. And so they waited. Okay. So they have this evidence. They're just still waiting for that smoking gun. I do which, appreciate that they're building a strong case strong before case they so go that for it. She doesn't just, yeah. <clears throat> so a grand jury was first formed for this case at the end of May. Okay. Um, so a little backstory on grand jury. You know this, but I don't know that all the gremlins do. Yeah. Um, it dates, dates back to the 12th century English law and is the only law in the United States still conducted in secret. Mm -hmm. So the grand jury allows members selected from the lay public to meet and decide if a suspect should be indicted. The judge's role is minimal just to kind of maintain order. Only the prosecuting attorney and the witnesses sworn to secrecy are allowed in the room. The grand jury for this case consisted of seven individuals. Um, they would meet once or twice a month for way longer than anyone thought they were going to. Mm. Um, witnesses passed into the chamber, were questioned, sworn to secrecy, and left without anyone else knowing what they said. Their first action was to subpoena Diane for a polygraph test. Hmm. Um, she learned of the sup subpoena the same day as the test. And it was at that point that Diane's father was like, you need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. So they hired James Jim Jagger. Um, he was recommended by a minister at the Fredrickson's church. More alliteration. Mm hmm. <laughs> yep. James Jim Jagger. <laughs> Laura's gonna like this one. Yeah. So Jim was 38. He had two kids around the same age as Diane's. He was friendly and open by nature and had practiced law for many years, um, longer than Hughie. And his acquittal record was very good. Okay. Yep. So Diane refused to appear in front of the grand jury. Which, as a victim, quote unquote, this is basically unheard of. Yeah. Um, how could a prosecutor act on her behalf if she refused to testify to the grand jury? Mm -hmm. So DA Pat Horton asked Jim Jagger about Diane's refusal, and his response was, "You know who shot the kids, and I know who shot the kids." <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was a good lawyer. He refused to let the he was he yeah. refused to let the county polygraph Diane. So he hired a private company 
Um, so she still did the polygraph, but not under the county's choice. And Diane okay. flunked the polygraph. But, Which we know those are garbage. Right, so I'm but not no gonna... one, But no one knew about it. Okay. So no one knew that she had flunked. He also wrote an official letter stating that staff at the hospital and members of law agencies were not allowed to question Diane, minor children, or herself. And they were not allowed access to their rooms or their bodies except for medical reasons. So, okay. like, investigators can't just waltz into the kids' rooms and question them. They are still minor children and, you know, cease and assist on that. Okay. So, June 3rd, the story hit the local paper. And for the first time, the public realized Diane might be a suspect. Most were shocked and many were downright indignant. Uh, they couldn't believe the authorities would be so insensitive to accuse this poor young mother mm, mm -hmm. yeah real tragic so paula krogdahl I don't, <laughs> I don't actually know how to pronounce that <laughs> can you spell it k-r-o-g-d-a-h-l krogdahl <clears throat> i believe it's krogdahl <laughs> <laughs> we should ask we, we should ask kate <laughs> she would be able to she's so it. good she's so good um so paula was the counselor put in charge of kind of raising Christy from her nightmares. Okay. And hopefully getting her to talk one day. Diane hated Paula on first sight. Paula spent two hours a day with Christy, morning and afternoon, and Christy started to trust Paula, and Diane called her a witch, an evil witch. Mm. One time, Paula brought Christy her favorite childhood doll, a rag doll. Diane ripped it out of the crook of Christy's paralyzed arm and flung it across the floor into the corner of the room. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's terrible. Christy was no longer in critical condition, but she was confused and terrified by her inability to speak. Um, and when she finally was able to convey her questions to Diane about what had happened to them, Diane's response was, she just kept saying, we've had a tragedy. Okay. Yep. So Diane visited Danny and Christy daily, and she would often lean close and like whisper to Christy. Again, not alone. There were other people there. Right. By June 10th, Christy's speech was starting to come back just a little. Okay. Um, so we're getting to almost the month mark. The officer there recounted that on that day, she told Diane, Paula was here today, but I didn't talk about nothing. Okay. Yep. So Christy knew that Cheryl was dead and that Danny was hurt, but she didn't want to talk about it. Um, sometimes she cried, but she couldn't explain her emotions and she just wanted to sleep and she didn't want to talk or remember. Mm -hmm. In early June, Diane went back into the hospital to have surgery on her injured arm. Um, they did like reconstructive surgery. She literally, she had to have literally shot the gun right into her arm because mm. it shattered. They had to like remove bones and do a graft from her hip and all Aww. sorts of stuff. <clears throat> her lawyer stipulated no investigators were allowed to be present in her room or the operating room. Um, her left radius had been shattered and it had to be reconstructed and she stayed in the hospital for four days. Um, again, 1980s. Yikes. She learned the day after surgery that Christy and Danny had been removed from her custody. Okay, as yep. they should be. As they should be. So Diane had said she was going to take her children out of the hospital and no one was going to stop her. So Hughie had no choice but to have a judge get, <laughs> get an emergency protective custody to the state. She's like, nobody is going to stop me except the judge. Yeah. So she could still see her children, though, in mm -hmm. the hospital. Diane demanded and got a hearing on June 6th to question the state's right to remove her children from her custody. And up until then, there was not a lot of current photos or quotes from Diane. Most of the media had been talking to her parents. On that day, she walked into the hearing clinging to her mother's arm. She's got her arm in this giant cast with like a sling and she was limping 
Although most people were like, I don't know why she was limping. Cause like <laughs> her legs were fine. Her legs were fine. And the camera loved her and she loved the camera. Oh, and Lord. it was like her limp just got worse and worse as she got closer to the building. Um, Diane lost the custody hearing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. as she should. She would have to make appointments to see her children after that. Good. But she'd won the media. Yeah, well. Yep. From that moment on, she had the fame she wanted. She was a media darling, first locally and then all the way through to New York. Like, she just, it swept the country. She no longer shared things with detectives. If she wanted to tell anything to anyone, she would call the media. And someone would interview her and someone would write an article about it. Um, She renounced all the stupid women, stupid liars that were sheriffs and legal people. (laughs) Wow. I don't know that she was super articulate. Mm, no. <laughs> um, after two weeks, two weeks after that, the daily meetings between the investigators and Hughie kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. His supporters were dwindling. They all just wanted to arrest Diane. So the lawmen. <laughs> <laughs> With their dinette sets. <laughs> involved in the case. <laughs> wanted to arrest Diane and felt that they had enough, but Hughie refused to prosecute yet. He was still biding his time. He knew they had, they knew they had enough to arrest Diane, but not convict her. Mm -hmm. So many leads and tips had poured into the police station. Some of them from her own father, Wes, they investigated every single lead. One allowed them to pinpoint the time that Diane left the Plord's trailer at nine was nine 40. One of them got them details that caught Diane in another lie. So Joseph Inman had gone out to Marcola to visit family He and his family were in the car returning, and he ended up behind a small red compact car that was only traveling about five to seven miles per hour with Arizona license plates. Oh, no. His speedometer pretty much read zero. That's how slow that car was going. His car windows were open. There was no noise coming from the car in front of him. And he had to follow it for about two miles before he could safely pass it because it's a winding dark road. The car was darkened and he couldn't see any passengers and could only see the shadow of the driver. Timing put this after the kids were shot. I'm going to throw up right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And detectives even marked off the road exactly where he said he started and ended following the red car. Um, Diane certainly hadn't been racing as fast as she could. I could vomit. Mm-hmm. That is horrendous. Mm-hmm. And he remembers specifically because his kids were in the car And him and his son, his son was like, look, it's an Arizona license plate. So him and his son were talking about the difference between a Texas license plate and an Arizona license plate. So So when this story came out in the news, he was like, hold up. Wait a minute. (laughs) I've seen that car before. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. She was traveling like five to seven miles per hour down that road. Mm. Mm -hmm. So after five weeks of treatment, Christy was released from the hospital on June 22nd. Um, she and eventually Danny went to a foster home of Ray and Evelyn Slavin, I think is how it's, how it's pronounced. They had fostered an insane number of children in the past. They were super experienced, um, and were extremely trusted and prepared. And the Slavins had actually started visiting the children in the hospital before they were released. And they visited Danny every day between Christie's release and Danny's release so that the kids Aww. would get used to them. Mm-hmm. Um, Christy as- attached herself to their adoptive daughter pretty quickly, and she she still struggled with her speech, but it got better kind of week after week. Once she was more confident, she talked about Cheryl, not from that night, but good memories of the past and her sister. Evelyn noticed that Christy, even though she was only eight, knew how to do laundry, 
Mm -hmm. Um, it was clear she was the one that took care of the other children. Mm, Yeah. She had to raise herself. Mm -hmm. Christy knew no other life. She assumed that little girls cooked and cleaned and did laundry and took care of their siblings. So sad. Yep. So Christy had nightmares, um, pretty much every night. And it was kind of recorded exactly what nights, anything that she said afterwards, if she said anything, um, Evelyn gave her the love and support that she needed. And, um, but both the Slavins were careful not to confirm or deny anything that she had said in her dream. Like if she said anything about the accident, they didn't confirm or deny anything. Right. <clears throat> she was having a hard time remembering what happened that night as I mean, the brain often blocks off trauma like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that she was certain of was that there was no one else there, but her family. She okay. kept saying that to anyone that would ask her questions. Oh, oh, oh. No one was there. It was just me. No bushy hair. Just my haired. family. No bushy haired guy. <clears throat> no bushy. She did not see a bushy haired stranger. Yeah. As the summer wore on, the sheriff's department lost funding from a public vote. So there was this huge vote. They lost all their funding. So Hughie still had a job. Alton got laid off. Um, but he hardly had any investigators left. There were like two left, and then all of the other ones had to go do other jobs and. Um, and Diane just assumed the investigation was pretty much over as more and more time passed with no arrest. And Hughie knew they had to wait until Christy was ready to testify. Mm-hmm. Uh, without that, Diane would walk and she would get custody of her two remaining kids and she would be off Nightmare. somewhere else. Yep. So they had to figure out how to finally get her. So they get Lou to agree to call and talk to Diane and record the calls. Oh, Lou, mm-hmm. he's back. He figured if she was going to admit it to anyone, it would be him. And after a few calls, he wasn't getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. So he gave Diane his number again and said she could call him on her own time if she wanted to talk. He gave her some parameters, like not before work, not <laughs> in the middle of the night. You can't call and hang up. He's like only on <clears throat> Tuesdays at 830 <laughs> yeah. and Sundays at four. She, he figured she might be open, um, more open if the call was like spontaneous and when she was feeling lonely. Mm-hmm. And they bided their time. And I love so, that phrase. I do. You've only said it 79 times. I know, times. and I'm just going to keep saying it because Hughie's <laughs> just like, still waiting, still waiting. So Diane went to the media with everything. She held her own press conferences. <laughs> um, and I just had this, I just had to include this here. So in the book, Anne Rule wrote, and I quote, if there were such a thing as a rule book for murder suspects, the first chapter would strongly advise against dialogue with authority. <laughs> so Grim AKA, has always said, AKA, shut the fuck up. Yeah, shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Diane did not do that. <laughs> ever. She's like, let me paint you a word picture. <laughs> she did not do that ever. No. And listening to those interviews that she gave, oh my God, I... Like she never, she never stopped talking. You hear the investigators be like in the background, like they're about to say something and she just keep talking and talking and talking. So so much word vomit. So much word vomit. Um, If she felt the authorities were taking too long or she hadn't heard from them, she would call them with a new little tidbit that she might've just remembered a new memory. She's like, I miss you. Let me tell you something. (laughs) She's like, I haven't heard from them in like a week. Hey, I thought of something. (laughs) She went to the sheriff and talked for hours about how his investigators were looking into the wrong person, how Child Protective Services was trying to brainwash her kids. He didn't play into her game, so she called him out in the media. (laughs) My God. Uh, This whole case was just a one-sided media circus because the prosecution was not playing into it. They they didn't do interviews. They didn't do... I said in the first episode, Hughie was not 
he didn't like the limelight. He didn't like the spotlight. And he wasn't about to just go talk to the media. So mm -hmm. she just kept calling the media and setting it up herself. <laughs> yep. Which, in the end, like, all of those discrepancies are now recorded of her story. Oh, right, right. Because she would tell these people this and these people that. And, sunk. Yep. So sunk. So two months had passed since the shooting, and Diane was still walking around free. She was back at work talking on the phone all the time to Lou with no avail yet. The media, the TV stations, the detectives. She called one of the investigators, Woost? Wooist? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce his name. How is it spelled? W-U-E-S-T. Oh. Wooist? Oh, Woost. <laughs> Woost? <laughs> and unfortunately, he says his name in some of the recordings of the, in of the like, investigations with her but in it's probably like seth but it's pronounced no seth. but it's um <laughs> it's from the 1980s and it's like a tape and you just hear <laughs> <laughs> i think that's actually how you pronounce it <laughs> that's how it's pronounced phonetically <laughs> yeah um <laughs> She didn't know this, but their time was running out. The sheriff's office had given them a deadline and they had to drop the case. Both the investigators had to drop the case and go back to work if they didn't come up with something. They had Diane come and look at a lineup of mugshots and that got her into the office. And then, of course, once she was in there, she wouldn't shut up. And that's called the hardball interview. And that's what I was oh. listening on the way, listening to mm. on the way here. Mm -hmm. So much word vomit. Yeah. So Diane listed all the suspects in the case for them. She named Steve Downs, her ex, uh -huh. his friend, Greg Roche, yep. and Charlene Lewiston. Those uh -huh. were her suspects. She then goes on to tell them that she remembers the name, the man called her name after she had been shot and he knew about her tattoo. That, that her memory was bad from that night. She must have blacked out or be blacking out the horrors of that night. And they asked her about how fast she was driving after the shooting to try and clarify the discrepancy from the mm -hmm. eyewitness and her story. She didn't know they had this eyewitness yet. Right. She got confused, said she was driving fast enough to get there in time, but slow enough not to crash on a dark, windy road that she doesn't usually drive. So, AK, four miles per she hour. She said she just couldn't remember. She said she never originally reported that the man had used her name because she was afraid he would kill her if she told. Okay. And she claims that was the only thing she knowingly omitted. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they started pushing her until she snapped. They're asking her all these questions about, like, well where would this man know you from and you know all they've and they were kind of playing i was listening to it they were kind of playing into her a little bit they mm -hmm. were like okay diane okay yep yeah, but but what about this but what about that i heard i read in another thing that she they actually said to her diane your story stinks <laughs> and she and she responds with then get some deodorant <laughs> I didn't hear that, but I also didn't finish the interview, so I'm not 100% sure um, if that's fact or fiction, but it sounds like it could be. It's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's good. Um, so she's claiming she's like all blacked out, and so they push her, and they keep pushing her, trying to get her to admit that the reason she has this void is because the only thing worse than seeing Christy bleeding, seeing Christy being shot, is being the one shooting her. So they just keep trying to get her to admit because she keeps starting to give little tidbits like, okay, it might be my fault. And they're like, what do you mean it might be your fault? <laughs> and she's like, I just mean that if someone targeted me because of me and mm. hurt the kids, then it's my fault. And they'd be like, 
okay. Tell and then us she'd more. be like, yeah. Then she'd be like, oh, it's worse than seeing whatever I'm blacking out must be worse than seeing Christy bleeding. And they're like, what could be worse than Christy bleeding? So that's so crazy. Like if she literally had shut the fuck up and got a lawyer, like they wouldn't have solved this case probably. Right. Um, or was there enough forensic evidence later on? Not enough forensic evidence. There's a testimony later on. That oh, okay. Will seal so, the case. all right. But yeah, but if they didn't have it to compare against her story, maybe, maybe though, it probably would have been no, super yeah. sketchy. If she just like showed up, and was like, my kids are shot and I plead the fifth. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess she had to tell some story. So my, honestly, my theory, listening to all of her different stories and like how this plays out, it sounds to me like she stuck with that first story for so long, but then realized no one was buying it. So she started changing things a little. That doesn't work either. <laughs> to That's try a and poor tactic. Make it make more sense. Because remember, the story didn't make any sense. So no. she's trying to make it make more sense. That Don't do that either. Uh, uh, but all it does is look bad because now you've changed your story 87,000 times. Stick with the nonsense. She, in, Just... the, in the interview, she keeps saying they. They said I, couldn't, I shouldn't say anything. And then she'd mm. go, I don't know why I say they. There was one man, but maybe there wasn't one man. Maybe there were more than one. Maybe I knew there was more than one. I never saw more than one, but maybe there was more. And that maybe that's why my brain keeps saying they. Or it's the voices in her head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she tells like interviews that there were two men. And okay. that they, they grabbed her by the arm and shot her to show her they meant business. Like, I mean, the story just wildly changes depending on who's interviewing her. It went off the rails. It did. Yep. So... So then they're pushing her and pushing her. And she, <laughs> Diane finally left after two whole tapes of interview. Oh my God. She was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be finished after this first tape. And then she's like, okay, put in another one. I have more. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh, and they just kept saying, you're free to go whenever you want. She's like, I know, I know. And then she she's keeps, like, but wait, <laughs> let me paint you a word picture though. So she Not keeps, done. yeah, so she keeps talking. And then when she left, she claimed she had, she all of a sudden is like, oh. <gasps> I remember, I remember everything. And she knew the shooter. She knew his name. She knew him. Ma'am. He, he wasn't after her car. He had come to shoot her kids and get revenge on her. Ma'am. But she wasn't going to tell them who he was because they were terrible investigators. She was going to bring him in herself. Ma'am. <laughs> Ma'am. I'm going to have to stop you right there, ma'am. <laughs> yep. And the DA's office was out of budget and out of time. So they were like, I, I don't know. We just got to leave it for the moment. Like, we, we don't have anything else to do. <laughs> but she was going to go find this man herself because clearly they couldn't find him. But she knew who he was now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Diane's attorney, Jagger, got his hands on all the evidence that oh, Hughie Jam had. James, Jim, Jagger. James, <laughs> yeah. James Jim, Jim, Jagger. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed with your remembrance of the names of all your alcohol. Yeah. Well, I stopped drinking like what an hour and 79 minutes ago, <laughs> at least 10 pages ago. I finished my glass of wine. Um, so they get all the evidence through the defense's right to discovery. And then Jagger and Hughie just waited because mm. again, they're at an impasse in the last week of August, 1983, Diane and her, attorneys flew to Chandler, Arizona to question her friends themselves. Okay. They were, were they, were they still just biding their time? <laughs> they were biding their time. Okay. I said waited that time. <laughs> I know, but yeah. I saw your eyes. You wanted to say they were biding their time. No, I typed waited. <laughs> they were looking for anyone that was sympathetic to Diane mm -hmm. that they could use as character witnesses, either for a custody hearing 
or a murder trial, depending on which way which way this went. Okay. Um, Diane was shocked to find no one. <laughs> no one that would speak for her? Nope. She apparently no longer had any friends in Arizona. Yeah, don't say. All her previous friends and coworkers, they refused to speak to the attorneys. Lou refused to speak to any of them. All she got was a cold shoulder. That's sort of what happens when you bang the entire town's <laughs> husbands. Like the husbands and all the and all the and wives turn leave. on you. So you yeah. don't even have to like pretend you like her anymore. Right. She's gone. So yeah. like yeah. So Danny was finally released from the hospital on September eighth, um, two days after his sister Christy started the third grade. So it's been like four months. Uh, the two would live with the Slavins together in foster care. Danny was in a wheelchair, most likely paralyzed permanently from mm. the from the chest down and diane was still not allowed to see or speak to her children good uh the case was on hold and so was her life she was in a deep depression alone no one would talk to her anymore she stopped talking to lou because she kind of caught on to like the fact that he was interrogating her mm. and at one call they were she was like are you recording this and he was like are you recording this <laughs> <laughs> and she was like yes but are you recording this and he was like Yes. <laughs> so she felt like she couldn't trust him because he didn't trust her. And so like they didn't talk anymore either. Um, I feel like it's like the meme of the two Spider-Men like pointing at each other. Are you recording? Um, and they, she stopped calling the authorities themselves in July. <laughs> she cut the lawmen off, huh? So she decided to do what she does best. And she took a lover to make her feel better. <laughs> Yep. So she turned to a man named Matt Jensen. Um, she had first met him in a park in July. She, he was a teacher on a lunch break. He was not married, believe it or not. Wow. And she was um, like sitting, taking a break from her mail route. And she looked really sad. So Matt, being a nice guy, like started talking to her, realizes who she is, cannot possibly believe that she would have done that to her children because she appears like a nice woman to mm -hmm. people that meet her. Mm -hmm. She's got this like charisma about her. Obviously right. all these yeah. men fall for her. Uh -huh. Um, so late in August, she calls him and asks if, if she could come over and then she seduces him with her bubbly personality. Um, just as she'd done many times. And that night they were intimate and then she doesn't talk to him for a little bit. And she started going back after him again in uh, honest in September and their relationship lasted three weeks. Per, okay, per yeah. standard. That's a long, I mean, that's a long time for her. That's a, yeah, it's a standard <laughs> time frame for Diane. Um, she had put a stake on him and he hadn't even known it yet. So she would show up at his work, at his house. She would put notes on his car. She would be there when he went for lunch. She knew everything about him. And when he realized how deep he was in and that she wasn't going to stop, he rented a new apartment and broke the, le <laughs> broke the lease with the, where wow. he lived and wouldn't tell her where it was. Wow. So Christy and Danny are seeing a psychiatrist named Dr. Carl Peterson, and Christy's making great progress. Okay. So Dr. Peterson relays to Hughie that he knows Christy saw her assailant, and that within four to six months, would she should be able to testify and explain what had happened to her. Okay. Whether it was Diane would still be seen. Like, she hasn't named anybody. Right. Um, Diane was still not allowed to see the kids, but Steve was. So Steve flew down in late September to see the children during supervised visits. And then he's allowed to take the kids out on day trips unsupervised. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. To be with Diane. So, well, no, he's not supposed to let Diane see them. And Hughie was not aware that he was allowed to take them without, oh. without supervision. Okay. He would never have allowed that yep. had he been. So Steve was talking to Diane's brother and father and 
taking the kids all day sometimes. And so Steve started to feel bad for Diane because her father is relaying how much she misses the kids and how she's so depressed. And so he called her on October 1st and asked her if she wanted to see the kids. Uh-huh. Yep. He told her she couldn't talk to them, just see them to see that they're okay. Yep. So Diane works her magic on Steve, as she always did. And not only does she go from seeing them to talking to them and hugging Christy in the park, she gets him to tell her where his hotel is and invite her over that afternoon. Oh. And then take Christy for a car ride. Oh, my God. Just her and Christy. Christy must have been shitting bricks. For hours. And she didn't return with her when she said she would. She didn't come back till after dark. He was ready to call the sheriff's office, despite the fact that he would have been thrown in jail for defying order. Apparently, she took Christy to see her parents and then brought her back after dark. And because she worried Steve so much, he wouldn't let her see Danny. He was like, get the fuck out. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yep. So the kids' foster parents and their psychiatrist noticed a huge change in the children's behavior. After seeing Diane? Uh-huh. Oh, my Especially God. Especially Christy. But no one knew why. They couldn't figure out, like, what was happening. Christy went back to being closed. She wouldn't talk to anyone. She wouldn't. It was, like, starting all over. No one had any idea why. So Diane decided she knew what she needed to do to help fix her, her life. She needed to be with her family. Uh-huh. So she reached out to Matt again, convinced him to let her come over, and seduced him. She... I need to watch your face when I say this. She told him she was on birth control now, so they were safe. She left that night knowing that it was the perfect time of the month and she could be pregnant. She just had to wait and see. Oh, my God. So she continued to... She's like a succubus. (laughs) She continued to plot and scheme. She didn't want Steve to have custody of the kids. Steve kind of used that as the, like, you can see the kids, but I need you to sign this paper to give me custody. Mm -hmm. And she refused, but he still let let her see him anyway. And she didn't want him to have custody. So she, she did this whole scheme. She had to let protective services know that she had seen the kids thanks to him, but not like tell them outright. Oh, oh, oh. So she hatches this whole plot where she writes a supposedly drunk letter to Lou telling him about how she saw the kids thanks to Steve. She then spends days calling and leaving messages begging Lou not to open the letter. She even threatened him that if he opened it and told anyone, his life would be worth nothing. (laughs) So, of course, he opens it. (laughs) He's like, well, anyways. He's thinking, I'm thinking he thinks it's it's a confession. Right. And so he opens it and reports what was inside, exactly what Diane wanted. Yep. He then gets a restraining order against her, afraid of her. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hughie was livid, but what was done was done. Right. There was nothing they could do. Right. So Diane turned out to be pregnant. Oh, my God. Of course she was. Mm -hmm. And it gave her new motivation and breathed new life into her depression. She filed tort claims against uh, CSD, the Child Protective Services, the Lane County District Attorney's Office, and the Lane County Sheriff's Office. And she named specifically Paula Krogdahl, the Uh council lady, and Fred Hughie. And then both Diane and Steve Downs were charged with contempt of court for allowing Diane to see the children. Mm Mm-hmm. So they had a show court hearing on December 9th. They showed up and Diane gets on the stand and throws Steve under the bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> per usual. Yeah. Um, it looked like she had the real chance of serving jail time. And then her lawyer stands up and puts it on record that she is two to three months pregnant. <laughs> and the media like was wild. They, no one knew. I mean, Hughie knew. Yeah. And like she knew and the dad knew, but the dad won't talk to her. So... Yeah. She was like, I wonder what happened there. 
she thought he would come around but he was like she'd like wait for him outside and he'd see her and then like walk the other way and she'd be like hmm he's still cold to me i don't know (laughs) (laughs) oh my god so the judge gave diane a one-year suspended sentence Mm -hmm. i tried to figure out what that meant but i did not know what that meant she doesn't have to serve it i mean there should be more to that but it's like one year suspended and basically that jail time's hanging over her head. Like it depends on the rest of the sentence, but. Oh, so like, let's say it was like, you can't see the kids. And if you see the kids again, you're going to jail for a year. You're going to jail for a year. Yeah. Normally there's like more to the sentence than that, but basically it sounds like a year of jail time was hanging over her head if she fucked up again. Okay. And so the end of 1983 came and went without anything else major happening in the case. Um, Christy was making good progress again Mm -hmm. with her doctor. Thank God. And more funding was actually found so that the investigators could start working on the case again. Um, And this is where I'm going to leave it. We haven't (laughs) even gotten to the point where she gets arrested. But at this point, some of the investigation leads to trial evidence. Okay. And so I don't want to, like, start on that road before we get to it. So if you want to know about the trial and what happens to Diane and her kids, uh, you'll just have to listen to part three. (laughs) Oh, my God. So anyways, if you're enjoying listening to, <laughs> listening to Grimm in this marathon episode about Diane Downs, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grimm colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grimm colon a true crime podcast. Like I said in the beginning, so artfully. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos and maybe to see that horse coupon <laughs> from our Grim one. If you want to send us case suggestions or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. Grim.